0: Okay, we've started the recording. This is lesson four, second half of lesson four on the providence, uh, providential preservation of scripture, how God preserved the New Testament. We're reading from Jeremiah chapter 36, verse one. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Take thee a roll of, of a book. And write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel. And against Judah. And against all the nations. From, that, from the day I spake unto thee. <clears throat> from the days of Josiah. Even unto this day it may be that the house of judah will hear all the evil which i purpose to do unto them that they may return every man from his evil way that i may forgive their iniquity and their sin then jeremiah called baruch the son of neriah and baruch wrote from the mouth of jeremiah all the words of the lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore, go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord in the ears of the people of the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return every one from his evil way, for the great for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people. <clears throat> um, and then uh, let's move down to, to verse eleven. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Sh- Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord then he went down into the king's house into the scribes chamber and lo all the princes sat there even Elishama the scribe and Dela, Deliah the son of Shemaiah and Elnathan son of Achor and Gemariah the son of Shaphan and Zedekiah the son of Hananiah and all the princes then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the word, the book, in the ears of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent Jeh- Jehedu, Jehudi, the son of nethaniah the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushai, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thine hand the roll wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people and come. So Baruch, the, the son of Neri, took the roll in his hand and came unto them. And they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, that they, they were afraid, both one and other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king all of, of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at the, his mouth? Then Baruch answered them and pronounced all these words unto me, Uh, he he pronounced he pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth and I wrote them with ink in the book then said the princes unto the Baruch go hide thee thou and Jeremiah and let no man know where ye be and they went into the king into the court but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elisham the scribe and told all the words er, in the ears of the king So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishamah the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read the three or four leaves, he cut it with the pen knife and cast it into the fire that was on the earth earth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer not close begin with a word of prayer <laughs> sorry dear heavenly father we thank you for your word we see how in this passage uh, it causes two different responses uh, one of uh, um, repentance and other of hardness of heart and we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who are soft-hearted toward your word. We thank you for, in your providence, bringing it to us, keeping it from being destroyed and cast into the flames. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we start, we, we closed with, um, we talked a little bit about the languages of the New Testament. Um, uh we talked about the formation of the, of the canon, um, that it was you know, not a church council that formed the canon, but we have uh, as early, and, and you can see in our timeline there, I've kind of divided up the early church into two different sections, a church under persecution, and then the church rises in power but is plagued by heresy. And uh, some of the things that we learned were that there was an early church in North Italy, that had uh, been given the Greek New Testament. It was translated according to uh, Beza, Theodore Beza, during the Reformation. This church was started back in 120 AD. In 157 AD, or as early as that, um, uh, at least by 157, they had translated the Greek text that they had been given into Latin. And so we hear of a book... You know, Augustine will call it the italic. You, you might be thinking that's a, a script, like, you know, italic script. Um, but it actually uh, means, it, you know, North Italy. Um, and that italic uh, Latin translation of the Greek was known to be very accurate, according to Augustine. Um, Tatian in 170 AD writes his Harmony of the Gospels so we know by then off uh in as early as 170 there is a collection of the gospels so much so to the, that they've actually started to compile a harmony of those four gospels so the four gospels were very well established and false gospels had been rejected by then um Tertullian and uh we don't know when he when he wrote um his prescription in uh, his prescriptions against heretics but in there we know and he lived from 155 to 220 um, so somewhere in there he wrote that the original manuscripts were being housed in the, in the towns that they were written to so if 1st um, and 2nd Corinthians where was that in Corinth where was Philippi, Philippians it was in Philippi where was Romans it was in Rome um, and these books were the original works of, of, the, um, of the apostles. And I will call them OM, original manuscripts, were housed in the various towns that they were written to. Um, where was Revelation? Revelation was one, one of the um, Asia Minor churches that it was written to. Um, so... Um, And then we see in 303 um, to 324, uh, that was the persecution of Diocletian in which those original manuscripts were uh, uh, consigned to the flames of persecution. Um, So uh, we talked about that last week. And this week, uh, we started to get into the whole I had a, a, a map written, and, it, and my map was not consigned to the eraser of the kids, <laughs> um, and the, um, I told them to be very careful not to erase this, and they did a good job. <laughs> a good, a good job. Um, that was uh, Wednesday night supper. Uh, they were hiding behind here, making drawings. <laughs> I wanted them to keep their original drawings, I thought that might be kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but. Uh, so we started to look at the characteristic of the uh, different schools um, at that time um, and i began to read some of louis burkhoff's principles of biblical hermeneutics or it's actually the principles of biblical interpretation but i i got this book in a hermene- hermeneutics course that i took and um he talks about three different schools. There's the Alexandrian school, which was characterized by allegory, and um, they they were known to synthesize or, or uh, combine various philosophies. So they they combined Jewish the Jewish religion, Christianity, and Greek philosophy all together, and. They thought that if you allegorize they were known to allegorize Homer and the Iliad um, and and various Greek um, works and so they applied that same that same methodology to the New testament and so uh, they were very fast and loose and and, and they could basically almost say anything uh, and and uh you know any kind of worldly wisdom they would um uh, they could uh, present uh, from the scriptures. But Antioch was a school that was much more different. They believed in the historical, grammatical method of interpretation. And I won't go through and read um, the section because I did that last week uh, on Berkhoff and how he describes that. There is a third school that's centered around Rome and Berkhoff refers that uh, refers to that as the Western school. And it adopted some of both. Um, but uh, So it, it was historical grammatical interpretation of the scriptures. It used allegory. Um, and by the way, uh, um, uh, Augustine was part of the, what you would consider the Western school. Um, however, in moreover in cases where the sense of scripture was doubtful um, this was Augustine he says uh, even Augustine who was a great theologian quote indulged rather freely in allegorical interpretation however in cases where the sense of the scripture was doubtful he gave a decided voice to the faith of the church Um, and so you see tradition So here you have allegory here you have historical um, grammatical, but here you have a mix of both plus ch- church tradition. And so you start seeing in the Western school church tradition becoming much more of a role in interpreting the scriptures. I can't, I shouldn't interpret this myself. I'm going to leave it, leave it to the early church fathers or something like that. Um, and so those are the three schools. Of hermeneutical principles, and we know this because they wrote Antioch um, in Antioch. There was um, uh, writings about how you should interpret the Scripture. Um, so I mentioned these these three these schools of interp- interpretation because they explained why Egypt, through its syncretism of Jewish religion and allegorical Greek philosophy, became a hotbed of Heresy. Um, so here is Egypt. You know, in this area here, this became kind of a hotbed of heretical teaching. Um, this is from Edward F. Hill's um, book. He says this. Thus, we see that it is unwise in present-day translators to base the texts of their modern versions on recent papyra discovered um, or on Vaticanus or Sinaiticus. For all these documents come from Egypt, and Egypt during the early Christian centuries was a land in which heresies were rampant. So much was this so that as Bauer, and he's from 1934, and Van Unick, that's 1958, had pointed out, later Egyptian Christians seemed to have been ashamed of the heretical past of their country and to have drawn a veil of silence across it. This seems to be why so little is known of the history of the early Egyptian Christianity. In view, therefore, of the heretical character of the early Egyptian church, it is not surprising that the papyra, um, uh, um, uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, he calls them Beta beta and Aleph, and other manuscripts which hail from Egypt are liberally sprinkled with heretical readings. Okay, so we're starting to see the characteristic of these um, these texts and coming out of Egypt. so what i've done is i've kind of put together a little time timeline of the the text. well i'll get into that in a minute. Let me keep going with with more of the history behind this little um, diagram that I wrote on the board Um, so then we have a period of doctrinal purity that enters the church and this doctrinal purity um, leads to a purification of the text Uh, we return to the preservation of the scriptures with the school of Antioch according to um, the verdict this is a quote from um, Ber- Bergon, uh, that, uh, Dean Bergon, who was a author back in the 19th, uh, in the, in the 19th century. Um, when all this... Uh, well, let me just go ahead and read this. Um, According to the verdict of all the critics, the date of these two manuscripts, the modern critical text is based on, coincides with the period when semi-Arianism or some other form of Arianism were in the ascendance in the East. Okay, so they were rising in the East, the Arianism. Okay, and to all outward appearances swayed the Universal Church. In the last years of of his rule, Constantine Constantine was under the domination of the Arianizing faction. Okay. Now, as we proceed further, we are struck with another most remarkable coincidence, which also, as has been before noticed, is admitted on all hands. And both, both sides of the issue admit this. Okay, That the period of the emergence of the Orthodox school and oppression and settlement in their favor of the great Nicene controversy was also the time when the text of Alex, the Alexandrian and, and uh, Vaticanus sank into condemnation. The Orthodox side under Saint Chrysostom and others became permanently supreme. So did also the traditional text. That's uh, John William Burgon in his book, "The Holy," uh, the, uh, the traditional text of the Holy Gospels. So. Um, so last week, we talked about this whole uh, Nicene controversy. Okay, so who, who was the main character that, that led the fight for orthodoxy? When I say orthodoxy, I mean sound Trinitarian theology. Who was the person who led that fight? Athanasius. Athanasius okay, so Nicene Creed was, uh, if you look at your timeline here, well, the first Council of Nicaea was three twenty-five, okay, and it basically was between the whole controversy was between usia. Um, and that. What is that first? And some of you Latin students might know this. Homo means what? Similar, and usia means what? Essence or um, essence or being. And so homoousia means the Arians were like, they were homoousians. They believed that Christ and the Father had similar beings, similar essence, but they weren't the same essence. And then Athanasius over here was saying, no, we are homoousian. Homo means same and usian means essence. So the Father and the Son were of the same essence. Okay, you see the the conflict there, and you might be thinking, well, Athanasius settled this in 325, right? Because we have the Athanasian Creed coming out of um, this first Council of Nicaea. By the way, I did look up where Nicaea was. It's just a little bit southeast of Constantinople, so it was very close to Constantinople um, uh, or or Istanbul of today. So um, so the Nicene Creed which was later revised, you might be thinking, oh, this settled the matter, but no. How many times was Athanasius exiled? Five times. And you can see that what happened was this just kind of kicked off the war in 325. And then there was this great battle and this great upheaval. And first, you know, one side would start to get uh, influenced by how they could influence the emperor or whatever, and they would say, okay, you need to exile all these guys. And then, and then it would flip around, and these, these other people would be exiled, and it was this great conflict. And eventually, um, the Orthodox side won out uh, through persistence. Um, in 381, the First Council of Constantinople, um, not Nicaea, but the Council of Constantinople, the Nicene Creed is amended, and reaches its final wording as we now recite it in our hymnals um, at the beginning we have it pasted in the front of our hymnal and arianism is finally rejected so that's 381 okay then you know i just read this statement about how that's how that whole upheaval and purification of the church into sound orthodoxy. Um, You know, uh, Bergon says this, that the orthodox side under St. Christostom and others became permanently supreme. So did also the traditional text. Well, who was Christostom? Uh, Christostom, also known as... um, You know, John Christostom, St. Christostom. uh, As Burkhoff mentioned, he was one of the early teachers of the school of Antioch. I don't have my map in front of you, but anyways. That believed in the grammatico historical interpretation of the scriptures. He was educated in the skill of rhetoric where he acquired a love for the Greek language. He lived in extreme asceticism and became a hermit in 375. I had all kinds of health issues, for standing for an entire... Uh, apparently, he stood all the time um, while he was a hermit. Uh, I don't know how he could sleep. Um, standing. Uh, he was ordained a deacon in 381. Like I said, asceticism had infected both sides, both, <laughs> both good and, uh, good and, and uh, heretical men. Um, ordained as a deacon in 381, ordained a priest in 386, and he preached in Antioch, from 386 to 397. By this time, he had given up his asceticism because his health was so bad and, uh, and was just a normal preacher. Um, however, uh, he, was, uh, he taught justification by, by grace through faith alone, apart from works, in his discourses against Judaizing Christians and, um, uh, and homilies on the Book of Romans, etc., so he was a sound biblical teacher. He would preach through the book of Romans, you know, and, and teach justification correctly. And, and, the, and the gospel was free, uh, freely and, and accurately preached from the pulpit in Antioch. And in 397, he was appointed as Archbishop of Constantinople. This is like, you know, like being, being you know, elected as Pope. Pope. without His nomination was without his knowledge. He didn't even know this. Okay? And he, was, he had to leave Antioch in secret for fear of his departure from Antioch would lead to civil unrest. So here we see that Christos the Golden Tongue had started a revival, basically, in Antioch so that he was so popular that when they tried to take him out, of the town, they they would have had a riot. <laughs> Can you imagine um, some you know uh, some, buddy giving uh, pastor sharp uh, um, an offer um, that he could not refuse, and um, all of Tallahassee says no, cannot take him away from us. Um, that was that was Christostom, Okay, um, <clears throat> he had uh, with the rise of orthodoxy during this time. Uh, I'm um, the settlement on the traditional text, uh, uh, the, the world, the church begins to settle on the traditional text. Dean Bergon states, from the last Greek revision issued a text, which was afterwards carried to Constantinople. Antioch being the true ecclesiastical parent of Constantinople. And therefore became the text dominant in Christendom until the present century. So do you hear what what Dean Burgon's saying there? At that point, when when the church experienced a revival, what was caused by what? Preaching, sound preaching from the scriptures, we see also in correspondence with that a purification of the text. And that purification of text is taken with Christostom when he is appointed um, the bishop of Constantinople. He takes it with him to, to Constantinople. And from then on, that text that he takes becomes the official text of the, of the entire Byzantine Empire. Okay. And the Byzantine Empire goes from 397 all the way to 1453 and with the the endorsement of the byzantine empire you have all kinds of resources you have professional scribes you have entire buildings built called scriptoriums built to the to the science of carefully copying the text from one manuscript to another um and so uh we, that it's, the, it's basically by people Not only people that were very careful But they knew the Greek language Because they, the Byzantine Empire Greek was spoken well Well into all throughout Byzantine Empire um, And so uh, Yeah, that's kind of an important An important detail Was this Greek revision New? Was this new? Was this something that, in Antioch, they were just, like, revising what they wanted, you know? Was it, maybe, maybe it was because they were Orthodox that they messed with the text and they made the Greek text to be Orthodox. Maybe they added things that, you know, reinforced their, their position. Well, no, we have quotes from the early church fathers Of disputed texts. So this is, there are quotes from. um, Okay, so what, what this guy, uh, William Burgon did, was when this this all all, this whole issue of the traditional text versus the critical text all came about with Westcott and Hort in the nineteenth century, the late nineteenth century. Okay, and when this all started to boil over in Great Britain. Burgon um, knew the history. Um, he was an academic, and he went through all the church fathers, just read through all the church fathers, and found everywhere where a verse was quoted. Okay, then he took a look at the critical text and the traditional text, and he found where there were discrepancies, and then he correlated that with any any place that those were those. Um, uh discrepancies or those variances were quoted in the early church fathers and he counted which which text they quoted from did they quote from an egyptian text or a traditional text okay this is very tedious and he found that three to one they quoted from the traditional text okay they still sometimes, you have early church fathers in, in Egypt. All of the church fathers had all of these copies and they didn't know um, which ones were faithful. And so they quoted from whatever they had on hand um, or whatever they had in their memory. And so the three, there was a three-to-one ratio. So we know that when they purified the text in Antioch, that those, te- those were not inventions of the, of the ministers in Antioch. The, there was a text around, in fact, we know from the, um, from the um, italic text, which was all the way back to 120 AD, that there was a traditional text that was faithfully copied, um, and that it was not an invention of Antioch several hundred years later. Does that make sense? And so the theory by Westcott and Hort was that there was a church council in Antioch and they just messed with the text. Okay. He offers no historical evidence of this. Westcott and Hort, both of them, offer no historical evidence of this. And then Burgon comes along and he disproves them. Okay, But yet... This is the text that we have of all of our modern translations, except for two, two or three. Um, I'll get into that later. Um, so anyways, uh, it's, um, it's important to understand, and I'll, let me kind of go over, the, this diagram might be a little bit helpful for those who are visual thinkers like myself. So here, here we have the original manuscripts, and when were those destroyed? Um, let's see look, if we look at our timeline around 303 to 324 somewhere and they could have been over a period of time because not all areas were suffered persecution at the same time um, so we know the original manuscripts according to eyewitness of Eusebius He says they were taken to the town square and burned publicly. But there are faithful copies made of those well before that. Anytime, because not everybody, you you go to Rome and you're a Christian, what do you want to do? You want to bring back home what? A copy of Romans. If you're a Christian, I know I would. Um, If I was an elder or a a pastor or something, I want to preach from Romans. Um, so I gotta go to Rome and make a faithful copy. Another faithful copy, okay, you get back to wherever you're from, some Asia Minor uh, town, and uh, what does the church next door wanna do? Make a copy of what you just made of Romans from Rome or whatever. So there are these faithful copies, but there are also spurious texts. Well, how do we know this? Well, we actually have writings, and I've, I could quote to you and uh, Edward where they even meant to monkey with the passages. They would, they would say, oh, this could not be, possibly be the mouth of Jesus. Uh, he would never say this. And they actually have that in their writings um, around uh, controversial texts. Um, so you have people monkeying with the text. They are spurious texts, and we know that. Okay? And it's very prevalent in the area of Gnosticism, and in, in, in the following weeks, we're going to go and we're going to compare the traditional text with the the, the critical text, and we're going to I'm going to point out to you where there are Gnostic readings, and you're going to be like, whoa, this is mind blowing. This is why are we, why are we doing this? You know, really, it boils down to the reason why I am a traditional text um, opponent um is basically down to one thing i'm trinitarian i'm not i'm not arian and, and that's why i believe um, we should be using the, the traditional text the text of the christian church throughout history and so so you have these spurious texts they are rejected um at three, 397, sometime before 397, in Antioch. And then they traveled to Constantinople and become the, the church, the, the text of the Byzantine Empire. Oops, I erased 397. For over a thousand years. For over a thousand years. Professionally transcribed or copied in scriptoriums. Okay, so, so we end with that. Um, Thirteen years later, 1466, 13 years after the destruction of Constantinople by um, the Ottoman Turks, a boy was born in Rotterdam, in today's Netherlands, born out of wedlock, His parents still cared for him and gave him the best education until they both died of the plague in 1483. He was forced into poverty and would eventually become a canon regular and eventually a Catholic priest in Stein of South Holland. His name was Desiderius Erasmus. And uh, next week, we will learn what Erasmus does as he travels through Europe and comes across these people from Constantinople that had fled and some of their, and some of their texts that they took with them. Um, and that will bring us um, into the next phase, which is the Reformation. And we'll talk a little bit about... Reformation up to the modern time and the whole controversy when we discover Sinaiticus and Vaticanus So with that, we'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your providence In bringing uh, the scriptures to us uh, we, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word as it was blessed in prior days Like in Antioch but that it would be blessed here in our town of Tallahassee. Uh, We thank you uh, for a faithful preacher. Um, We thank you uh, that we have the privilege and the freedom to come and worship you um, each Sunday morning and evening as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.